Turn with me to the Scriptures, the Word of God, to study, to read, to learn, to grow, to love. Galatians chapter 3, and we'll read verses 23 to 29. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to promise. Father, we praise you and thank you for the truths and the promises in your word. Lord, as we study together, we ask that your spirit would work in our minds and our hearts, Lord, to illumine the truth of your scriptures. God, that you would teach us, that you would grow us, that we would love you more and love others more. Thank you for Jesus in his name. Amen. Well, if you've been listening to the recent estimates for how many people live on this ball of rock and water, there are, according to latest estimates, nearly 7.9 billion people on earth. And it's really hard to make sense of that number, isn't it? I mean, what what does that mean, 7.9 billion? Our minds are made to try to find order and patterns and categories that help us make sense around the world, and and we like to do that. Human beings like to make categories uh, of things and people. We do it with rocks, right, Bob? You were... You're here this morning. We do it with categorized rocks. We do it with cars. We do it with uh, living organisms like animals and plants. And some of the students are shuddering, thinking of domain, kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, and species. Doesn't always work so well for us, though. It's why a tomato is considered a fruit, right? A strawberry is not a berry but a tomato is, and a pumpkin is a berry, and, a, and an avocado is a berry, okay? I mean, sometimes our categories just don't make a lot of sense, but human beings, people are also different, right? So how do you categorize human beings to make sense out of 7.9 billion people? Some people would answer that question, well, how many different kinds of people are there? 7.9 billion different kinds of people, right? No two are the same. But we still attempt to do it so we can make sense out of different cultures and different types of peoples and personalities. And so we're familiar with personality tests, right? Uh, According to one that was very popular for a while, you could categorize people into 16 different personality types, the Myers-Briggs personality test, or the nine personality types based on Enneagram numbers. Both of those, by the way, have been dismissed. They've been um, discredited by personality experts, by psychologists, uh, but they still hang around and they still make their rounds. Um, the latest, for your awareness, is called the five-factor model. And these fall short because people are just so different, right? These are meant to be helpful for us, but they fall short because they unfairly categorize people. 
They put them into stereotypes. They give people excuses for why I don't have to do this or why I always do that. And, you know, it's not my personality to to help other people or to, to meet new people or, you know, any of the important things we're supposed to be doing. People are just too complex. Sometimes their tastes change so often that they come up with different personality numbers in those tests. But there is something objective It's determined by somebody who knows everything that can be known about each of the 7.9 billion people on this planet. Personally and intimately, God categorizes people. Have we thought about that? And it's not based on personality. It's not based on wealth or whether there are some people who are better than other people. It's based on one human being that lived 2,000 years ago who is also God, his son, Jesus Christ. And so there are two categories of people in the world. And those two categories are defined by their relationship to that one human being, Jesus Christ. And all people begin in the first category, without Jesus. And all people are invited into the second category, with Jesus. And there are a lot of important reasons that it matters. It's not so important whether someone thinks they have a certain personality type or not, or whether they like something one day and not as much the next. But these two categories are crucial. And of course, we know that from eternity perspective, right? I mean, we're going to spend forever either in heaven or in hell based on which of those categories we're in. But recognize that this is essential for the entirety of our life now also, not just in the eternity, future, forever. And remember, that's what Paul's focus was even at the beginning of this letter, Galatians, referring to how Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, delivers us from the present evil age. Our relationship with Jesus, of course, is of eternal consequence and significance, but that eternity begins here and now every day of our life. And as Paul discusses these two categories in these verses in Galatians 3, that's the focus, our present reality. But what's true right now? And right now he's speaking to those who have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so the first category is given in a past tense, but it also becomes a description of the reality of those who are not in the second category or not yet, as we hope to see and as we pray for people to become. It describes also, this first category also describes what we Christians are so often tempted to fall back into. And so it's important to see this and to understand this, these two categories, and let's start with the first one. Number one, you are either, in verses 23 and 24, in captivity under the law, and we'll get to the second one in a few minutes. But the first one, in captivity under the law, see how it begins here in verse 23. So now, before faith came, look at verse 25, but now. So it's the teaching for Christians about our previous condition versus our present, current position and condition. But what does this mean before faith came? Well, to help us understand, when we see the word faith as we're studying the Bible, and that's something that we endeavor to do is to equip each of you to know how to study the Bible yourself, when you see this word faith, it's often helpful to ask which of two aspects is faith referring to when you see it. So briefly, what does that mean? Well, the two aspects of faith are objective and subjective. Objective faith is what we mean when we refer to faith as something that someone believes. Um, It's the what. 
you know, when you ask someone, what faith are you? What is it that you believe? The objective faith is what makes up the set of beliefs that defines Christianity, defines the gospel as unique and as God-given. Objective faith needs to be stated. It needs to be revealed openly and then also preserved because the faith, the gospel, the truth of God hasn't changed from Moses all the way through John in Revelation. It's the same truth that Peter preached, that Jesus preached, that John John and James and Paul and everyone else preached. And Jude 3 is is a great example of this use. When Jude writes, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So the faith came at one time. It was once for all delivered. It was given as something real and objective, and they needed to contend for it. That means to strenuously struggle for the body of truth. And why would they have to do that? Well, because there were people, he says later on, that were coming in to pervert this truth and to try to change the faith. So that's objective faith, but the subjective aspect of faith is also necessary for us in our lives, and it's the actual belief. It's your trust in. It's what you think of when you think, you know, do I have faith? Do I believe in and trust in the truth? And it's what Jesus refers to in Matthew 8, 26 to his disciples when he says, oh, you of little faith. He's not talking about the objective uh, faith, the truth. It was what they believed, how they believed. Uh, Whereas objective faith is stated and revealed, subjective faith is given as a gift to a person. We've seen that in Ephesians 2, Philippians 1, 2 Peter 1. You've got those verses in your notes. You can see these and, and just relish the fact that God has given us faith in the faith. So there's objective faith that is the truth that makes up what Christianity is. And then there's subjective faith, our trust in that objective faith. And here's why it's so important to understand. If you just have subjective faith, then you can just believe in anything right? Um, You'll hear that a lot in the world today, especially this time of year. Just believe. You know, believe in what? Santa Claus, right? Um, Believe in your heart. Believe in your dreams. Believe in yourself. Just believe in some kind of higher power. Just believe. Just have faith in something. But we can't just have faith. Our faith needs to be in the truth, the, the objective body of the truth of the gospel. But you can't also just have the objective faith because then it's just a bunch of truths and it's irrelevant and not important to my life. You've got to have the objective faith and then the subjective faith believing in that objective faith for it to matter. Objective faith comes first and then subjective faith in that. Okay, so why have we gone over that? Well, because the question is here in verse 23, which one is he referring to here? To help us understand before faith came, what does that mean? If we say that Paul is referring to objective faith, if he's, if he's saying before the objective truth came from God, if it was not available to anyone until it came now to Paul and to the New Testament, then what you would be saying is that nobody in the Old Testament was ever saved because there was no objective body of truth for them to believe in that would save them. Um, all that, that would be true of them is that they would have been trapped under the law with no way out. Because we have already seen many times that the works of the law will justify nobody. They will, that will work for nobody to be saved. 
Now, we know that the full body of truth was not available to the Old Testament, right? We know that they didn't know about Jesus yet. They didn't know about the Holy Spirit indwelling believers full time yet. But they did know that they were sinners. They knew that they needed God's forgiveness. And so they looked forward by faith to the final sacrifice that God would provide the perfect lamb who would come to bring forgiveness of sins even as they continually sacrificed animals for their obedience to God. So there was a body of truth called the faith, and it looked forward to Jesus coming. People in the Old Testament were saved by God's grace through faith in His promises. So this can't be the objective faith that was missing, that Paul said, well, suddenly along comes the truth, and now people can be saved. It was there in the Scriptures all along, even if it wasn't fully understood and fully known. Not to mention, of course, that Paul's argument this entire time in this letter has been works of the law versus subjective faith, right? Our belief in the truth and how those are opposed. That's the contrast here. Before faith came, before we believed in the truth, where were we? We were held captive under the law. So faith here in verse 23, the first part is subjective faith. Rather than believing, we were trying to work in the law, right? But keep reading. Before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Now, the first time he said faith, it was subjective, but what about the second time here in verse 23? Here it's the coming faith that's revealed. Remember, subjective faith is given as a gift personally, but objective faith is revealed. It's given openly to all. So, which is it here? The second time that he says it here, this is objective faith. Now, the faith was already available. That's why the Old Testament saints were saints. They believed. But the fullness of that faith was revealed openly and finally in the person of Jesus Christ when he came. That's what Paul means here. You say, well, how do we know that? Well, look at the parallel in the next verse. He says, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came. What was it that came and that was revealed before? Faith. In this verse, what is it that comes? Christ. Who is the fulfillment of faith? Who is the the objective truth and the, the body of what makes up our belief? It's Jesus himself. Why was he revealed? Why did he come? Paul says, in order that we might be justified by faith. Well, which one is this? Well, it can't be the objective body of truth because it's openly revealed to all. It must be that we are saved through the vehicle of our own personal subjective faith in the objective faith, Jesus Christ. Okay, so I really hope that wasn't confusing. (laughs) I hope that wasn't too difficult and that you were able to track along here. We can be finished with that conversation. But it was helpful to understand what these verses are talking about. Jesus is the embodiment of the faith of Christianity. He is the sum total of God's word, the living word in a human being. He is what makes up Christianity, and we must believe in him to be justified. To be justified, remember, means to be declared righteous by God before God, and that happens by faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, there's one more bit of important detail to discuss before we can just get back on track here. Uh, Look again at verse 23. He says, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law. Look at verse 24. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Now look at verse 25. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Look at verse 27. For as many of, 
you as we're baptized. The end of verse 28, for you are all one. And verse 29, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. So he switches in the middle here. Who's the, who's the we, who's the you, and why does he switch? That, that's a big question for us, and it's helpful for us to understand these verses. The, the simple answer for who's the you, who, who, you know, why is he referring to you? Well, that's the Galatians. That's Gentile Christians. And it's plural, even though the English doesn't have plural. It's relatively clear from the context. That's the you. It's Gentile Christians. But who's the we? Well, it could be that Paul was writing and he had a bug in his pocket. So he says, me and the bug think that or, we're this way. No, that's probably not it. Maybe Paul's speaking. It could be that he's speaking as an apostle on behalf of the other apostles. But there's not much evidence of that in this text. Many people believe that Paul is speaking about himself as a Jewish person on behalf of all Jewish people who, who now believe they had the law of God like no one else did. But it also could be that he's speaking on behalf of all Christians, all believers in Jesus Christ. We, meaning Paul and the Galatians, the Jewish Christians, the Gentile Christians, and everybody who has ever been saved. But then why does he switch? Why does he switch from the we to the you? Well, I believe the reason for the switch is to get rid of the question of who we refers to in any way to begin with. See, the Judaizers were teaching that only the believing Jews were saved because they were Jewish. They were the only ones that could have God's grace because they followed the law. They had the law and they obeyed it and they did it wonderfully and perfectly. Or if not perfectly, then close enough. But they were saved because they believed that they worked their way through the law. So when Paul switches to you all, and he's talking to Gentile Christians, he's telling them, you all are sons of God, he says, through faith in Jesus Christ. You're baptized into Christ. You've put on Christ. He speaks of their unity, and he talks about how they are Abraham's offspring. We, brothers and sisters, who are Gentile Christians, are included in Abraham's offspring, in the promises of God to be sons of God. So it's not just the Judaizers, it's not just the Jewish Christians, it's all believers who are included in all of the promises of God, and it comes about through faith. So, the conclusion here is that pronouns are important, right? Yes, we were all, we were all, but you now, now you are in God, you're in Christ. Now, only the Jews were given the law of God from God through intermediaries, right? We talked about that last week. But all of humanity is accountable to the law of God written on our hearts and revealed in creation and in conscience. Okay, so whether we're speaking about strictly the law of God in the Old Testament, whether it means only the Ten Commandments, whether it means the whole of the law, the whole of the Old Testament, or whether it just means God's law written in our hearts, we were all under that. Look at this captivity under the law. It's described in two ways here. Uh, the first is captivity or imprisonment. And I got really excited when I saw those because I, I thought, you know, I'm going to go to the Greek. I'm going to get my Greek text out here. I'm going to get my dictionary. I'm going to look up these Greek words. And these words mean just what they say. <laughs> captivity and imprisonment. That's the description of being under the law. The law holds us captive, imprisoned. We're locked up. And, and we're, not, we're not to think of the what many people see as five-star luxury prisons like we have in America here. Uh, this is prison like shackled, bound up, and cast into a dungeon with filth 
maybe some food, maybe some dirty water. Okay, if you survive it, um, you weren't expected to. To, to be thrown into this kind of prison. Imprison here is, is the same word that's used in verse 22 where we're imprisoned under sin. It's the same thing. We're imprisoned under sin, imprisoned under the law. And it's a terrible condition. You're not able to move very much, let alone get out of prison. You remember the, the uh, prison that Paul and Silas were in in Acts 16 where they're shackled and they're bound up in this dungeon and, and there are guards to make sure you stay put. That's what the law does to us. There's no way to get our freedom. The second way that this is described is guardian. And we need to understand this word because we don't have anything like this in our culture, this guardian. This was a man, usually a slave of the family, who was entrusted with the care of the boys in the family. This slave was given um, constant, strict supervision responsibilities over the boys. You make sure these boys do what they're supposed to do all of the time. Keep them out of trouble. Watch them as they go to school. Get there when they're done with school. Bring them home. While they're playing all the time, whatever's happening, you watch those boys. They had full disciplinary discretion. If a child disobeyed, Plato said that the guardian would treat that boy as if he were a bent and twisted piece of wood and you would straighten him with threats and blows. That was the role of the guardian. Boys were often given endless work to keep them so busy they wouldn't be in trouble. The Socrates actually had a conversation with an older child who had come out of this system, and he was just shocked. The slave has more authority and more value than you, a free person, while you're under that guardian's authority. His total control and authority. The guardian was pictured on pottery. You could tell if you were looking at a guardian, if you look at uh, Greek or Roman pottery, because it was the man with a stick. (laughs) And it's raised up. And they were often portrayed as rude, insolent, and like a jailer. Children would yearn for the day when they would be released to their freedom from this guardian. That's this word guardian, always there, always watching. And it was intended for safety, Keep the children safe, keep the boys safe so they don't harm themselves and others. That's what the law was meant to do, keep us safe away from overwhelming amounts of sin, but it constantly swatted us and beat us down, and it showed us how bent our heart is towards sin. The law was constantly over the Jewish people, stay away from that, don't touch that, always do this, right? And there was punishment when they didn't meet that standard, there was discipline when they broke it, there was sin, it needed to be dealt with. And Gentiles, we, we can understand this as we, as we consider the cultural pressures that are on us. Make sure you do this and don't do that and go over here and say that. And, and the work of God's law on our hearts where we, we know the right thing but we're tempted against it. And we, we break God's laws and we just can't make ourselves good enough. The law hems us in. It traps us. It imprisons us. It guards us. And we feel the weight of the law so that we can't escape. Now, it's meant to drive us to Jesus, but so many in our culture are driven to other answers. You know, people feel the bondage of the law, but they don't recognize it as that. They just say, you know, I need to go shopping, (laughs) right? I need some chocolate. (laughs) I need some alcohol. I need some music. I need to uh, have some entertainment. I just need to appease my desires to get a taste of freedom for myself. And that's how we self-medicate 
against this burden of the law constantly on top of us, beating us down. The bondage is because of the law. The bondage is to sin. It's sin that imprisons us, and we think we can find a way to get relief in these little things that we do and these little things, these little sins that we can commit and, and other things that we try to do to turn to to give us a sense of freedom, a sense of relief. Sin has dominion over us because the law excites sin. Okay, and so that's how this is working together. That's how it fits together, and it's so powerful. But as we were singing about this morning, Jesus is more powerful. But that's the first category for those who are in captivity under the law. That's the first category. The second category, number two, is that you can also be in Christ united as one. In Christ united as one. Verse 23 says before. Verse 25 says, but now, believer, but now, here we are. Now that faith has come. This is for you, brother, sister in Christ. Now, which is this, objective or subjective? We'll continue the sentence to make this clear. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Faith has come. This faith has replaced the guardian that was over us, constantly weighing us down. Faith has come because we're in whom or who? In Christ. This objective faith, this person who is the embodiment of the truth of the gospel has come. And in him we are sons of God through faith. That's the subjective, through faith, our belief in him, our trust in him. So again, both aspects show up in this verse. But as we have believed in the faith, we have faith in the faith, what does it say? We are no longer under a guardian. Now, the only way to be removed from a guardian was to age out, (laughs) to to get old enough and, and to be recognized as an adult child by your parents. You are now the adult child of your parents with your freedom. You no longer have the guardian, the the constant berating presence of that guardian. He's removed. Now, that's, we're going to see in the coming chapters, brothers and sisters, that, that that doesn't mean we just get to do whatever we want whenever we want. We just become free to sin all we want. We'll learn what this freedom means. But Christian, this does mean you no longer have that guardian hanging over you, beating you down, smacking you upside the head when you mess up. We do that to ourselves. We can convince ourselves that we're still in that place. We, we're tempted to go back up underneath the law so that we can feel the weight of that and and feel that, but we're free from the guardian of the law. We're free from the captivity to sin in Jesus. What's true of us now? There are four changes for believers now in these verses. The first one is that we are now sons of God in Christ. We say that in verse 26. Sons of God in Christ, we're no longer children with a guardian that has more value than us, right? Because when we stand before God, His law is more valuable, we will be condemned under the law. Now we're removed from that. Instead, we have the protection and love of God himself. We're his children now. He lovingly disciplines us when, he, when, when it's needed, but he has justified us. We are declared righteous in Jesus before God. We belong to him directly as sons. And it doesn't say sons and daughters because in the culture, and daughters would have meant nothing. Like, well, that's still not quite high enough. This is, we're called sons of God because all of the rights and privileges and blessings of being directly children of God is there in Jesus. 
First, uh, well, we read this morning in John 1.12, to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It's through faith, through believing in Jesus, that the guardian and the prison is destroyed, it's removed, it's done away with, and we become direct children of God. And again, all of the blessings and all of the benefits that, that come with being directly children of God. And they're not all spelled out here, but just this benefit is huge to be out of, of that guardian, to be out of prison. That's the first one. Number two, we are now clothed with Christ. Verse 27, we're clothed with Christ. He says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now, when we came to Christ through faith, we were immersed into him. We were placed into Jesus in such a relationship with him that what this is talking about is that we became identified with him, united with him in death. That's, that's what spiritual baptism is. That's what the picture of physical baptism is all about. We became identified with him, united with him in death, united with him in burial, so that our old selves are removed, but the result was so that we would be raised with him from death to walk in newness of life. And that happens to us when we deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. It comes by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And for all of us who have been baptized into Jesus, Paul says here, we have put on Christ. We are clothed by Christ with Christ. That means that we have, we carry, we wear his name and his character. It made me think of the high priest Joshua in Zechariah 3, and he stood before God with filthy garments. And God said, take those garments off of him and put on pure vestments, the, the pure, clean, ceremonial robes that he could serve God with. That, that's what Jesus does. He takes off our filthy garments and clothes us with himself. His perfect righteousness. He removes our sins and he covers us with his perfect character and name. Who are you, Christian? You are a Christian. You are named by Christ himself. That's what people call you, a Christ one, a Christian, because he clothes us. We are no longer imprisoned under a stick-wielding guardian, <laughs> We're no longer waiting to be beaten every time we mess up. We are children of God clothed by Christ himself. Number three, verse 28, we are now unified in Christ. We're unified together. Verse 28 says there is no more division like there was under the law. There's no such thing anymore as the Jew-Greek division or Jew-Gentile division. There's no more division like the slave-free-man division. There's no more male-female division as there was under the law. Instead, you are all one in Christ. Now, if there's been a misunderstood and misapplied passage in Galatians, it's going to be these verses. It's going to start here in these verses. The law made distinctions between those who were descended from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and then everybody else in the world. Okay, the, the law did that. And, and the law made distinctions between who the free Jewish people, what the free Jewish people could do, how they could worship God, what they could do in society, and what those who were enslaved couldn't do or could do, those who were not male could do or couldn't do. 
and between males and females, free or Jewish and Gentile. Who, where they could worship, what they could do. Now, what people started to do was they made those distinctions. They based those on a feeling of superiority. Because I'm male, I'm better than a female. Because I'm free, I'm better than someone who's enslaved. Because I'm Jewish, I'm better than somebody who's a Gentile. That's what happened in people's mind. A Gentile, it was taught, is a dog, a fuel for the fire of hell. A woman has little to no value compared with a man, and a slave is obviously below those who are free. And it was so free to those free Jew, so clear to those free Jewish men, they were taught to pray thankfulness to God. Thank you, God, that I am not that you have not made me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Those three distinctions from the law that people use to base their feelings of superiority over other people, those divisions from the law have been crushed, demolished in Jesus. We all become one in Christ. And part of the misunderstanding of this verse and many others is ignoring the unity that Christians have in Christ. Not that just that we have, but that we are to be in Christ, one together. You are not on your own in this world, Christian. And we're far too familiar with distinctions and divisions between Christians, between other people. You know, we'll divide into seniors over here and young people over there, and the young marrieds over there and the older ones over there, and, and the students definitely keep way over there, <laughs> away from everybody else, right? And that's how so many of us are taught to, to divide ourselves into different groups. You know, and certain doctrines. You think Jesus is coming back here. Well, I think he's coming back there. Well, then we better get away from each other. No. Christians are one in Christ. That's what Jesus prayed for. That's what he desired. That's what God makes true of us. He prayed that all of us would be unified, and that's what his desire is. So when we are truly in Jesus, we are not only made to be sons of God and clothed with Christ, we become part of a unit, a whole unit of one. Christian, your faith in Christ must be personal. It must be your own faith, your own subjective faith in Jesus. But when you come to Jesus in faith, we've got to stop learning and in, in terms of me and I and more in we and us. Again, pronouns are important, right? <laughs> They need to reflect the reality of our joining together. A Christian island of one is not really a Christian island. A lone wolf is just that, a wolf. Even if, there are, even if there's sheep's clothing on a wolf. Now, another part of the misunderstanding of this verse, verse is that since these distinctions are destroyed in Christ, they go away and they don't matter. And we need to be careful here. The differences in context relate to the distinctions made in the law. Okay, but that does not mean that when a person comes to Christ, suddenly he loses all of his culture, all of his language, experience, gifts, and talents. Jesus has prepared people to join him with different experiences, different languages, different cultures. They don't go away. In fact, they become useful. They don't mark someone out as superior or inferior. They're different, and God has done that on purpose. You don't stop being from America or Mexico or Canada or Egypt or anywhere else that you are from. The superiority is done away with. The distinctions in the law are done away with. But we still have our cultures, our languages. 
Becoming a Christian doesn't automatically make you free from slavery in this world. And that's what 1 Corinthians 7 is all about. You know, you, maybe you were a slave when you came to Jesus. Be a Christian slave. Maybe you were a free person in Christ Jesus. Be a Christian free person. Being free or slave does not preclude you or include you as a worshiper of God as it did in the law. Jesus makes you a worshiper. You know, we actually have evidence from the early church of slaves becoming pastors in the church and having authority over their own masters in the church. So that when they came together in the church, they were a pastor, but then Monday through Saturday, they were a slave. You also don't stop being male or female. And of any of the misunderstandings here, maybe this is the chief one. Again, it was the law that separated male from female, and it was presumed to be based on superiority. But all of that is removed. It wasn't true to begin with. There was no superiority one over another for any other reason. But if that's true then, many of us ask, and many of us are confronted with this in culture and in other churches, if that's true, then why are women not able to be pastors? Right? That's the big question on many people's minds today. If the distinction is done away with, why is it still there? Is it not a prohibition from, it, it, it is not a prohibition from worshiping, right? We all become one in Christ Jesus. But this rule for preaching uh, pastors or, or teaching pastors to be from qualified men is a rule based on God's designed order from creation, not because of inferiority or superiority. And we don't have time to go there because we're, we're just about out of time, but 1 Timothy 2 Verses 8 through 15, you have these in your notes, but 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15 um, is this discussion where Paul says, look, women should, uh, it's okay for women to look nice, okay? He's not going to prohibit women from looking nice and braiding hair and and those things. Um, He says that they are to, likewise, as with the men, they're to be holy. They're supposed to be living without anger and without quarreling, adorned with the same things. Um, he says you should be known more for your good, your good works than your good looks. It's not bad to dress nicely. It's not bad to look good, but you should be known more for your holiness, your good works. But verse 12 of 1 Timothy is, is the prohibition stated in the format of a general prohibition. And the reason is given in verses 13 and 14. Uh, he said, why should a woman not exercise authority over a man? Well, because the first reason was that man was created first. That's the first reason. It's not because of inferiority. It's not because of superiority. It's not because a man can do something better than a woman can. In fact, many women are excellent leaders and excellent organizers and excellent teachers. But because man was created first and secondly, because Adam wasn't deceived, but Eve was, and she became a transgressor. Now, remember, transgressor is to go beyond, and she had gone beyond her authority as the wife who was to be submissive to Adam. She had gone outside the bounds of God's command, and part of the curse was that that was going to continue. That was going to strengthen. The man would be tempted to um, just complacency and not taking a lead, and the woman would be tempted to take over the lead and to take control. And it's a general pattern that's still true of women and men today. But it goes all the way back to God's order in in creation that, that women are not to be pastors or teachers of men. Again, it doesn't have anything to do with aptitude or ability. 
But you don't stop being male or female in Christ. Again, we don't stop being from America or Egypt or Mexico or, or anywhere else in the world. We all now have access to God united together as one in Christ. And it's all because of God's design. Now, the oneness doesn't mean sameness, right? We don't all become identical, and that's why we have different members of the body. That's the word Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 12. Some of us are eyes, some of us are feet, some are hands, but we're all different kinds of members of one body, individually members of it, he says. So, we don't have time to, to go through those carefully, but you have those verses. Study them on your own and grow in this faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, there is one more here in verse 29, that we are now heirs of the covenant in Christ. We are now heirs of the covenant in Christ. Remember that Jesus Christ is the offspring, as we learned about earlier in chapter 3, that fulfilled the promise of God, the covenant of God. He's the one who would bring us that blessing to all families of the earth. Only he could, only he did, for us to become part of it, we become united together in Christ, and now we are heirs. We're joint heirs with Christ. Well, there's much more that we had that uh, we could say and that, uh, that we can see in the culture around us. Uh, brothers and sisters, I'll just mention that even uh, in the culture around us, when you remove the gospel influence, just the influence of the gospel, people will revert back to and go back to those kinds of divisions. In public schools in our country, there are at least 70 different instances of what are called affinity groups, where they are purposefully segregating children again by race, in order to try to teach them better because we thought it was a bad idea before, but now maybe it wasn't such a bad idea to have segregation in our schools because it's a different worldview, a worldview of Marxism in the, the, the CRT, understanding the, the, promote, the proponents of, of CRT, the critical race theory. Which, the, the minute you remove the, the influence of the gospel, you, you, there are divisions. All of those, all of those um, prejudices and, and hatred comes back. Our application this morning that we'll consider for ourselves, and since we can't solve all of the big problems of culture, <laughs> is to consider our hearts. Wh- where are you? Which category are you in? As you're here this morning, or if you're in the first, let's talk. L- let's find out. Come talk to one of the pastors at the information counter or up here in the front. We want to talk with you to show you this Jesus Christ, so that you can be in the second category of being in Him, a son of God and clothed with Him, heirs with Christ. If you're in the second category already, brother and sister in Christ, if you are already there, stop living like you're in the first. Don't live like you're in the first category. You are a child of God. You're clothed with Christ. We have unity in Christ together we are heirs of the covenant. You have put on Christ, continually put on Christ, brother and sister. That's the last part here. Be what you are. Do what you are. You are a believer. You are a child of God. You belong to Him through Jesus Christ, so live that way. Father God, we praise You, Lord. We thank You, God, that You have given us the truth. Father, You've given us the, the gospel. And Father, not only have you given us the the truth and declared it and revealed it to us, Lord, you have given us the faith to believe, and for that, Father, we fall before you and we praise you. 
God, we thank you. Thank you that Jesus, your perfect son, God with you, God, came to earth as a man. God, that he came, that he was born as a baby, and he lived perfectly, righteously before you. Father, thank you, Lord, that even though he died, not because of his own sins, he died because of mine, Father, that he didn't stay dead. Thank you that he rose. God, I pray that you would give us boldness with this message. Lord, that we would live this message and speak this message. Father, the people around us would learn about Christ and hear the truth, the faith, the man who is our faith. God, that you would grant faith and repentance, Lord, to people around us, that that we would glorify you, God, by bringing others into the kingdom of Christ. Father, we praise you. We thank you for your many blessings. Lord, we lift up the name of our Savior, Jesus. In his name, we exalt and pray and sing and live. Amen.